We are going to be on page 945 in the Coffee House Bible. That's Acts chapter 10. This morning, Michael sang the song, Thank You for Pain. And do you know the line that we sang, well, prove it, I'm on the floor. That was me this week. Uh, Like a six-year-old boy, I had double ear infections. And the pressure in my head was so much that it burst one of my eardrums. And I had such kind of disequilibrium, some vertigo all week long. There was nausea. And then one evening, I think because of the nausea, I didn't want to eat. And so I took my medicine for the antibiotic without food. And so then the nausea led to vomiting. And the vomiting and the nausea led to a migraine. And I was just on the floor. And Kelsey got in that night after our prayer time. And we just sang a duet of Thank You for Pain. It was beautiful, you know? That, that's actually not what happened at all. <laughs> I mean, I, I was like tears. In my, I was, it was one of the most miserable nights of my life. But a few days later, it is so striking how the Lord can use an earache to show you how small you are and how utterly dependent I am on him. This morning, I'm dependent on the Lord for a lot of things, including the vertigo, and I'm also dependent on this chair. Um, so if I feel or seem a little wobbly to you, it's, it's because I am. Um, and so just kind of bear with me a little bit, all right? Um, let, me, let me start with this question. We're, we're in part three of a series on freedom. And what we've said is that Jesus has the desire to set us free. It's for freedom that you have been set free, that he wants to set you free from one glory to another glory. He wants us to experience freedom in the land of the living and in the resurrection life. He, he wants freedom. What was that? Is this chair falling apart? I was not kidding when I said I was relying on this chair, so EMT on hand, where are you? Okay, all right, thank you, thank you. Ah, this is part three, and it's, it's a sermon on entanglement. Entanglement's a strange word, so let's, let's start there. Have you ever been tangled up? Now, I've probably already used this sermon illustration. It won't be the last time. Uh, Don and Denise, where are you guys? Okay. Uh, man, we were, Don and I were working on a project at Pickwick Lake. There was a boat lift involved. And with a new boat, we were trying to move around some boat lifts, and the whole family, it was a whole family affair. We were all trying to just help out and get this thing hooked up where it needed to be. But this is a massive structure, lots of steel, huge plastic float. And as we're working on it, you know, it's kind of floating there. And as we're getting it settled and into its location, it starts to turn. And these boat lifts have big holes in the bottom uh, where they can actually take in water. But, you know, normally they don't because they're not turning. But th- in this case, it, it turned. And it actually turned and it started falling onto Denise, my mother-in-law. And it, it's, it had her pinned and wedged. And if I'm remem- misremembering details of the story, I'm sure they'd be healthy, happy to correct. But this huge, I mean, it, it just filled with water and steel, just tons of weight is now being leveraged against Denise and her petite little body. And it's, it's just about to crush her. And so in this burst of what I think is probably both adrenaline and 
um, an angel's visit, I, I rush to the float and I push with all my strength, which as you can tell is significant. Um, you know, it's not like Jermaine is pushing this float, right? David Adams is not pushing this float. It's me, you know, 155 pounds. I just put all my weight into it and actually it, it works. I, again, because of adrenaline and I think a visit from an angel, I was able to push off this weight. But then as I pushed it off with all my strength, she is set free. She's no longer pinched. But there's this chain that was on the float. And the chain, I kind of, I push in my weight. It, it pulls me into the water. And then this chain wraps around my leg and I get tangled up. And as the float goes down to the bottom of the lake, I'm pulled down because I'm tangled. You know what I mean by tangled? When we think of a spiritual entanglement, very often what we have in mind is something that you didn't really intend to get into. That you had the best intentions maybe even. It was perhaps you were trying to help and in your trying to help you get tangled in a way that is very unhelpful for you even if it's helpful for somebody else. And so there I was being pulled into the bottom of the lake. That's what, it, that's what I mean by tangled. Have you ever been tangled? You know the Disney movie Tangled? It's actually the story not of anybody being tangled, it's the story of Rapunzel. So why is it called Tangled? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, Disney knows that boys don't want to go to princess movies. And so if you call it the story of Rapunzel, you're going to eliminate half your target audience. And so let's find a general neutral way of getting the boys in the room too. But it's actually a play on words, right? Because Rapunzel has, she's known for her what? Her really long hair, and hair has this way of getting tangled. I have this daughter, beautiful girl, with lots of curls, and every night I'm trying to put in this, this hair bun, and I'm not good at hair, especially a curly-haired little girl, and it gets tangled. The movie's called Tangled because of hair, but mostly it's not because of hair. It's because Rapunzel gets tangled up in all sorts of stuff. She's got family stuff that she's tangled up in. She's got in-law stuff, you know, like stepmom stuff. She's got boyfriend stuff. She's got community stuff. She's got history stuff. And she's just tangled up in all of it. The movie's called Tangled because of all the ways that she's entangled with her community, with her family, with herself, and her, just the people around her. Does that make sense? That's what we mean by tangled. In Scripture, there's... There's a lot of phrases that the New Testament uses to talk about entanglement. In James 5, he says that some of you, I'm feeling a little wobbly, some of you, he says, when you wander from the truth, you, you hear the language of wandering. It's not that you meant to go somewhere, it's that you kind of got off track. You, but he says, if somebody can turn them back, you can save a sinner from death. You can, you can save a soul for somebody who wanders. That's what we mean by tangled. You just kind of wander away from where you want to be, and then you end up lost. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells the story of the parable of the soils, or the parable of the sowers. And it's actually part of our giving liturgy, where he says that some of the seed is cast among thorns. Remember this? What do the thorns do? It says the thorns raise up, and they choke it out. And what, is, what are these thorns? He says it's riches. It's the cares of the world. They raise up and they have this kind of entangling effect and they choke out the thing, the seed of the gospel. It's, 
we have this garden behind our house. And this year there was lots of things growing in it. There was tomatoes and peppers and corn. There was zucchini and watermelon. Um, there was carrots, there, broccoli. There were all kinds of things. And we put a sweet potato vine. And this one sweet potato vine started growing. It had beautiful leaves, and that was part of why we put it there. But after a few vines start growing, the sweet potatoes just kind of crept and crept into everything. And I'm not great at weeding gardens, especially when they have beautiful leaves. And so it wasn't long before the potato vines actually spread into both plots. And they kind of had their, their coils around everything in the garden. I didn't mind too much. It was beautiful after all. It kind of covered up some of the, the other stuff that wasn't quite as pretty, even if it was fruitful. But what it meant was, very soon, nothing in the garden was fruitful. Everything stopped producing because it got wrapped up by this potato vine. That's what we mean by tangled. Jesus says of those thorns, it says that they, in verse 20, he says, it chokes the word and it makes it unfruitful. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives another dimension of being tangled, and he says, don't, don't be fooled. The evil companions corrupt good habits. People. When you get tangled up in the wrong people, it has a way of, of corrupting, of kind of warping something. There's a lot of ways to be tangled in Scripture. There's this sense of, like, I can't stop. I feel stuck here. I didn't want this. this. This isn't what I signed on for, and here I am in somewhere I don't want to be, and I just can't stop it. Paul uses this language in Galatians 6. He says, if any one of you is caught in a trespass, you hear the language of you're in a snare, in a trap, you're caught in a trespass. He says the spiritual have to restore you, but he says, if you're going to get involved in this tangled mess, you have to be mindful of yourself lest you also be tempted. He says, if you go into the tangled mess, watch out. It's coming for you too. In Romans 7, Paul says, I don't understand what I do. The thing that I want to do, I don't do. And the thing I don't want to do, that's the thing I do. It feels like a trap. Activities like shopping or pills, or masturbation and porn, texting, alcohol, sugar, marijuana. There's just so many kind of activities that we get wrapped up in because we just wanted an escape from something. We wanted the satisfaction, that little dopamine hit that it gave us, and then it's like, now how do I get out of this mess? Sometimes it's our vows and our allegiances, our words get us into tangles. There's a man in Acts 8. He's called Simon the Sorcerer. He's a magician. He's famous. And then he sees a better magic, so-called, and it's the Spirit of God. And he says, I want what these guys have. And he gives his life, and he's baptized, and Peter and John, they come to him. And then he realizes that Peter and John have the power to lay on their hands, and people get the Spirit. And he says, I want that. Will you sell it to me? And Peter looks at him and he says, 
what is wrong with you? You are captive to sin. That's the language he uses. He's a captive to sin. There are these ideas that can get us tangled. There's, yes, friends and things we do, but sometimes it's just an idea. In Colossians 2, Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by vain philosophy. There's worldviews. There's, there's things that people are selling that can just grip you. And they sound appealing at first, but then there's like a lot more under the surface that you didn't realize was there. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul, he's warning about false teachers. And he says, you have to be gentle with people when you're teaching them so that they can come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Or in Revelation 18, he says, there are people who are like under a magic spell who've been led astray. Do you hear all the ways that just the New Testament talks about being entangled? A bunch of different ways. In this series, we're kind of using this lens of prisoners and captives. Prisoners are people, typically, who have done something that leads them into prison through their own choices. And then captives are people who normally, not because of their choices, but because of some invader or some oppressor has come in from the outside, they end up in a similar predicament. Sometimes it's the things we do, sometimes it's the things done to us. Entanglement is sort of like the, the hybrid in between. It's the things that started with curiosity and a, a naivete that then lead into a trap and a snare and it feels like you just can't break it. Where are you entangled, I wonder? In Luke 15, Jesus tells the story of a lost sheep. He says there's a shepherd who's got 99, he's got 100 sheep and he's got 99 here, but he notices that one has wandered. And then the wandering sheep gets so lost that it can't return on its own. It needs a good shepherd. So today I, I want to talk about entanglement. I want to explore this idea. We're going to look entanglement big picture, but the way in for us is going to be Acts chapter 10, page 945. And we're going to use the entanglement of an idea, and it's the idea of race and the gospel. The reason we're looking at this is because it's one of the most common entanglements in the New Testament. And I think it, it continues to be incredibly powerful in the context of the United States and the church in America. Um, so we're talking about race, but it's really about a bigger picture of what it looks like to be entangled and then... After we kind of explore what entanglement is, we'll try to explore how to break it and the one who can. All right, let's dive in, into our text today. Um, this is, in the context of Acts 10, it's a story about the apostle Peter. Peter was a friend of Jesus. He was in his ministry for years together. He was with Jesus a lot. Uh, he was a fisherman. He's kind of boisterous and kind of impulsive, it seems. Uh, he's the leader of the early church. In Acts 2, he's the one who stands up and he preaches. He has a tremendous voice, and people follow where Peter leads. And so it's really surprising in Acts 10 where we find him. I say it's surprising because Peter ends up in a familiar place where he's been multiple times. Let's just read this text, and then I'll, I'll show you what I mean. 
In verse 9, he says, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Now, we're picking up in verse 9, but in verses 1 through 8, there's a man named Cornelius. Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He's a Gentile. He's not a Jewish person. He is what Jews would think of as unclean and a pagan. He's, you, you can't associate with somebody like that. But Cornelius has had a vision that he needs to go find a man named Simon Peter. He's staying at Simon the Tanner's house, and he needs to send messengers to get Simon Peter to come. Meanwhile, Peter's praying. He goes up on the rooftop to pray. And as he prayed, he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing the food, he fell into a trance. So this, this prayer isn't just speaking to God. There seems to be a mutual communication that's happening between God and Peter and Peter and God. And he saw the heavens, they were opened, and something like a great sheet, like a four-corner bed sheet, a white sheet starts descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And what he says in Acts 15 when he's describing this, he says it's basically, it's Genesis 1. It's every living creature that the Lord God created. It's on this sheet. It's this little miniature version of like the descent of the creatures of creation coming down. And there came a voice that said to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And this is why I'm not a vegetarian. No, I'm just kidding. That's not why I'm not a vegetarian, but I, I, I love to point that out. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And for Peter, it's not a tension of meat versus vegetables, right? It's a tension of clean versus unclean. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter thinks, by no means. Commentators say this is really strong language. He's saying it's one of the only times this word is used, but it's this really aggressive, I'm never going to do that. No, no chance. Are you, are you kidding me? For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Common, in kind of Jewish jargon, is this category that it, it's not clean. It, it doesn't fit with their temple and their holy place. And so if you associate with things that are common or unclean, then you have to go through purification rituals in order to get back into worship and get back into the temple and into the community. I have never, you see that language. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. What God has made clean, do not call common. The second time. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. You see, it just keeps going on and on and on. What's interesting is that we know Peter as the guy who denied Jesus three times. Do you remember this story? Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And he says, may it never be. I would never do a thing like that. I'm, I'm ready to die for you. And the man who denied Peter three times is well known for that story. But actually, he's the man who denied the Lord three times twice. He's doing it all again. He's crushed because he still doesn't get it. And as he's praying, it says that the messengers from Cornelius arrive just at that moment. As soon as the, the sheet goes up, then knock on the door, there's three messengers. And the messengers say, we're here looking for Simon. 
it's Simon the Tanner's house. Good, you came to the right place. Actually, we're not looking for Simon the Tanner. We're looking for Simon Peter. Oh, he's upstairs praying. Let's go find him. They tell Peter, here's why we're here. We need you to come with us. And he says, oh, the Lord must be up to something here. And so Peter heads off to the home of Cornelius. We're skipping ahead several verses. This is verse 28. And he said to them, you yourselves know, he steps into Cornelius' house. And the first thing he says, this is how hospitable Peter is. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation. I shouldn't be here. This is against the law. Now, this is weird because actually it's not against the law. There is no law in Israel that says you cannot associate with Gentiles. This is so surprising. Peter is a Bible guy. He is the, the preacher. He knows that his Bible, that in the Old Testament story of the people of Israel, God is making Israel into a light for all nations. In fact, the whole storyline of God is so that all the nations can be welcomed into the people of God. He knows that in the story of God, at critical big moments, God invites in non-Jewish people and the nations. It is not unlawful to associate with non-Jewish people, and yet here he is saying it. But he's not just a Bible guy, he's also a Jesus guy. What I mean is that he was with Jesus when they went into the places of Roman centurions. He's helped serve centurions. He was with them at the Samaritan woman. He was with him when they went across the sea to the Gentile territory. He was with Jesus, when Jesus was with Gentiles, it's not unlawful, and this is the way of Jesus. Jesus said, one day in the future, I'm going to send you out like a lamb to the midst of wolves. You're going to go to the Gentiles, and yet here he is. But this is also, he's not only a Bible guy and a Jesus guy, he's a spirit guy. In Acts chapter 2, story of Pentecost, he's filled with the spirit, and what he hears from the Lord is this message from the prophets. And the prophets say that the Spirit is coming on all flesh, not just Israel, all kinds of people, everybody. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Joel chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, Peter, <laughs> the, the quotation comes from, he said it. How have you forgotten all of these things? How are we years after the resurrection of Jesus and you're still here? It's because Peter's tangled up in something. You see, the, the racial animosity that he's experiencing is a tangled mess for the people of Israel. John Stott, in his commentary on Acts, he says it's difficult to grasp the impassable gulf in those days between the Jews on the one hand and the Gentiles on the other. Not that the Old Testament countenanced such a divide. The Old Testament didn't point to this divide. It affirmed that God had a purpose for the Gentiles by choosing and blessing the Jews. He intended to bless all the families of the earth. The tragedy was that Israel twisted this doctrine of election into one of favoritism, and it became filled with racial pride and hatred, despised the Gentiles as dogs, and then they developed traditions that kept them apart. You see, they misread a law and then they built traditions on top of it to keep those people out. No Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile. All familiar intercourse with Gentiles was forbidden, not by the law, 
but by tradition. And Peter was a man of tradition. This was his world. This was his people. This was his custom. I have never, which means I will never. And the Lord, three times again, had to break this down. What I have called clean, do not call common. What I have called clean, do not call common. What I have called clean, do not call common. And so he shows up to the house. And he says, I really shouldn't be here, guys. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. You see the breakthrough. The tangled mess of racial animosity. The Lord is breaking it down with a personal encounter. It is a personal encounter with the Lord. And this is not unusual in the book of Acts. When Saul and all his hatred for the people of the followers of Jesus takes a personal encounter of Jesus where he sees the Lord and then the Lord speaks to him and he realizes, I'm tangled up in something I have no business in. The same thing happens to Peter. He's tangled up in something and the Lord needs to show him specifically what he's tangled up in and then he breaks him free. He, he cuts the vines. He, he unroots the thorns and he pulls him out of it. God is showing him something spectacular. He's free of it. And this becomes one of the central messages of the book of Acts, that Jewish believers, under the power of the gospel, can embrace Samaritans, Acts 8, Africans, Acts 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, and then Romans, Acts 10, and even Greeks, Acts 11. This story becomes the story. It's repeated three times in the book of Acts. In Acts 10, Luke tells the full story. In Acts 11, he tells the full story again. Meanwhile, the gospel starts going to Gentiles in churches like Antioch where Paul and Barnabas are sharing the gospel with non-Jewish people. And they call this big meeting in Acts 15. And Peter is going to share the story once more. You've heard me say that if Scripture repeats something, it's important. And here it is sharing the same story over and over and over. And it's the story of racial animosity is not the way of the gospel. And the Lord is breaking down using these personal encounters and he's using this power of scripture to do it in the early church. This is one of the most common threads of the New Testament. Now, there may be people today in America who are tired of hearing sermons about race. And I've got to believe that there were people in the first century tired of hearing letters read again about race. But that is what Romans is all about and Galatians is all about, and Ephesians is all about, and there it's under the surface in Philippians and Colossians. It's just so frequent, this message, and this message we still need today. And so Peter, he preaches to Cornelius. He shares the gospel, and he says, I have come to realize that God shows no partiality between racial and ethnic groups. Everybody comes in the same way, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're Greek or Roman or African or Samaritan or Israelite, you all come in the same way and it's through the grace of Jesus. Man, praise God for what he did to disentangle Peter. It's a good thing Peter would never struggle with this again, right? <laughs> Setting up for the next story. 
A few years later, Peter is working with one of those churches that went to the Gentiles. It's the church in Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were. It's the church where the Holy Spirit was doing incredible things among non-Jewish people. And Peter's there. He's, he's doing some good work for the kingdom. He, he's sharing tables with people. He's realized that he, he can't let these clean, unclean boundaries separate him at a table from clean and unclean people, so-called. But one day in Antioch, Galatians chapter 2 says that messengers came from James in Jerusalem. All these really strict, kind of conservative Jewish people showed up. And they start saying, you know, for our sake, we really need you to just sit at our table rather than their table. We can't sit at the same table. We need you to act Jewish after all. You're Jewish. And the tangle that Peter finds himself in is reactivated in these relationships. When Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says, the Apostle Paul, I opposed him to his face. Cephas, you may be wondering, who's Cephas? I thought we were talking about Peter. But we're dealing with a lot of languages here. Cephas is his Aramaic name. That's Simon Cephas. That's his name. But Jesus is the one who gave him the name Peter. And Peter means something like Rocky. He, his name is Rocky for good reason. He, he's kind of Rocky after all. And when he came, Paul opposed him to his face. I cannot imagine the level of differentiation that it takes for a man to oppose Peter. Not just differentiation, but courage. And, and the way that Paul does it is by siding with these so-called unclean lesser people. He chooses the weaker. And he stands in solidarity and he opposes the great powerful Peter to his face. He says, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came back, he drew back and he separated himself. Why? Because he was afraid. He was fearing the circumcision part. You see how our relationships can activate an anxiety? Our, it's not just relationships, but it's really our associations. The people that we get wrapped up in, we start wondering about where our standing is with them. Where our standing is with the people who've got a seat. Where our standing is with the people who know mom and dad and, and my in-laws. We start worrying about people. And so, the rest of the Jews, they follow the guy who's got a say after all, right? And it says the rest of the Jews, they acted hypocritically. Now, hypocritically, in our context, usually means you say one thing and do another. It's more like the phrase two-faced where you're, you're just split. You, you can't do the thing that you know is right. And so they're playing the fool. They're acting the hypocrite. They're putting on a mask, and they're following along with Peter so that even Barnabas, Paul's dear friend, the one who started this work with him at Antioch, even he, do you see this language, was led astray. He's wandering. He's tangled. He's wrapped up in something because of these people. He's led astray by their hypocrisy. But Paul says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You see his argument. You're not in step with the gospel. I, I love this. Um, 
it's no surprise here that a lot of my thoughts come from Tim Keller. Um, he has some really wonderful writings about racial prejudice. But one of the, the great gifts he's given to me is to show that Paul doesn't point to a new rule or to an old rule. He doesn't say, after all, now that Jesus has come, we know that racial prejudice is a sin. And you're a sinner and you need to repent. That's not his approach at all. Instead, he says, this is not in line with the gospel. You need to remember the gospel. I think this is significant for several reasons. It's interesting that the thing that took three visions of Peter, he falls back into so quickly. But here, Paul, he's not appealing to his visions. He's not appealing to the Spirit's work in these people at Antioch. He's not appealing to the day of Pentecost. He's appealing to the gospel of Jesus Christ. His basic argument is this. First, God didn't have fellowship with you on the basis of your race or culture. He didn't have fellowship with you on the basis of your race. And so though you were good and devout, though your race and customs were, were all upstanding, that had nothing to do with your standing. Your relationship with God is based on grace. Therefore, second, how can then you have fellowship with others based on their race and culture rather than on the basis of grace? So he says in 15 and 16, we ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. He says, I, I'm just like you. I'm a Jewish person. But we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. The argument goes on, but for our purposes, we see the entanglement and we see the key to breaking it. It's encountering the gospel. Just step out for a second. Just notice the nature of Peter's entanglement. The, the first piece of Peter's entanglement is traditions. It's laws. It's customs. It's, it's kind of the way of the world. And the way of the world has this web effect of it puts us in an ecosystem, a habitat that we can barely notice. It's just the way that the world is. We call it culture. The second piece is his commitments, his allegiances. We see this in his language of things like, I have never, which then means I will never. And so it's the personal practice that gets habituated over time. It's not just that he grew up in this context, it's that he became the thing that he repeatedly did. Our habits, we make our habits and then our habits make us. He becomes his commitments. The commitment leads to compulsion. This is just who he is at some point. Third piece of Peter's entanglement is his associations, his relationships. There's these pressures that reactivate an anxiety and a fear for the Jerusalem people. And even Barnabas is led astray. Now, this is a pretty good lens for seeing race in the United States today also, where the traditions and the customs and the laws form an ecosystem that's kind of under the surface. It's unspoken. It's just there. And because it's there, it's hard to notice until something enormously disruptive, like seven minutes and 41 seconds of a police officer's knee on someone's neck murdering him, the, the murder of George Floyd was such an awakening in our country. Um, I was thinking of that this morning as we sang Amazing Grace. My mind, when I sing that now, it, it goes back to this, this clip of the protest in Memphis where white and black are a cappella singing Amazing Grace at a protest. Because amazing grace is really, it's, it's this affirmation 
that not only of equal dignity, but of equal redemption because of the grace that gets both of us into the same door. We live in a, a culture that's deeply soaked in racial sin. And those things aren't just traditions, personal family patterns. They get habituated in ourselves. And so a nation's culture becomes a family culture. And so we grow up with these weird jokes from grandmother and granddad, and some of them may not be jokes. And mom and dad, and this kind of implicit distance. And then at some point, the commitments and the I have nevers become I will have nevers, and they become compulsions. We get entangled. Family histories, even recent ones, are tainted by generational patterns of prejudice. But perhaps most of all, our associations. And associations become part of the habits, and they become part of the tradition in a segregated culture that's divided by sin. Do you see how race is actually a pretty good lens to see the web of entanglement? But this isn't just a sermon on race. This is really a broader view at whatever it is that is entangling you today. Can we turn there to you? Now I know I'm not off limits here. But can you hear me? And I, I wish I had the passion today, but perhaps I can just share the vulnerability instead of the urgency of how important this is. I think it was about 12 years ago, I was on a mission trip in Detroit. Um, we took a youth group there. I was with um, Reed Howe, uh, sorry, um, I was mixing too many people. This is the vertigo speaking. Um, Andrew Howe, Reed Stafford's cousin. And we, we did this trip in Detroit. And one night I got a cell phone call, it was my brother. My brother told me just devastating news that after about a decade of marriage, he had had an affair. Uh, it was a woman that he worked with. Um, the things weren't great at home. He didn't feel appreciated. You know, there's, there's kind of like discontent around the house. Wish things were a little different. And that gives foothold. And then there's a connection. The connection leads to a little broken boundary. And then the, the vines, they just start wrapping up. And the affair then leads to a broken marriage. And a broken marriage, 12 years later, is still is really, really difficult, chaotic. It's full of death. I just can't communicate how urgently I feel this, this message today. That if you're tangled up in something, you've got to break free and there's only one who can do it. There's a lot of ways to get tangled up. Jim Barnett is coming here for Freedom Prayer.
in her book, First Freedom, she says, no one searches on social media looking for an old high school love in hopes of ruining their marriage. No one starts drinking socially in hopes of destroying their life with alcoholism. No one gets tied to a person in such a way they hope they can no longer think for themselves. No one makes seemingly harmless vows to an organization expecting to be tormented by them. No one grows up hoping to repeat the dysfunctional patterns of their family, but discovers that they're doing the very same things that they hated. There's a lot of ways to wander. But do you see the urgency? It will make you unfruitful. But then over time, it will wrap you up and it will kill you. And it will kill the people around you. Perhaps literally, but certainly spiritually. Sometimes this looks like our traditions, these generational patterns, the way grandma and granddad did it, the way mom and dad did it, the way of the world, the way of culture. Sometimes it looks like our own commitment. Sometimes it looks like childhood vows. A childhood vow is where you promise yourself something that I will never or I have never because of something that was just so messed up in the home you grew up in. Normally it's an overreaction. And so it ends up being like a child's clothes. The child's clothes is fully appropriate to get out of childhood. But once you're out of childhood, if you're still wearing a little boy's shirt, it's going to feel a little tight. It's not going to be functional. It's going to hold you back from the freedom that he wants you to have. It may have helped you survive until you got out of the house. But now you're out of the house and you need to break free. It's our commitments, but it's also our associations, the the codependency, the people that we get wrapped up in. So whatever it is. There's a lot of ways to wander. Uh, here's, here's just a, a quick exercise to kind of explore with the Lord where it is that you're, you're wandering, where you feel tangled up. It's just an, a simple identify and replace scenario. If you want to do this right now, I encourage you to do that. There's a bulletin. You can flip it over on the back. There's a place to kind of jot down some notes. You can take it with you. Nobody has to see it. Um, if you want to spend a little more time, then just write down the guide and you can do it later. Um, If you want to just talk to your therapist and say, you know, something came up on Sunday. I think the Spirit was saying something through a message. This can come up. Um, If you want to schedule a prayer time, um, let me or Reed know, and we'll get you the sign-up to have your own freedom prayer time. Uh, The exercise is pretty simple. The first one is to just ask the Lord to reveal a place where you're tangled up. And some of you, he's already revealed it as you've been sitting here. You know, it's... It's perhaps that codependent relationship. It's that boyfriend, that girlfriend, that spouse, that in-law, that parent. Um, Perhaps it's that addiction, that thing that you just can't stop doing. Perhaps it's an emotional affair or that physical affair. Perhaps it's something else. But if if he hasn't revealed it to you, just ask him. Make some space. Get some silence. And ask the Lord to reveal it to you. Where are you tangled up? And the second thing, after he reveals it to you, ask him, to give you the reason for it, the why. Normally, under the things that we get tangled up in, it's because we actually had a good desire that just went off the rails. Normally, there's a desire that you were made to have and made to have within God's design for that desire and just kind of went off course or you started enjoying it in a place where it didn't belong. But a lot of this piece, this, this middle piece, is to really start understanding the story 
your story is so important to figuring out where you're tangled up. If you can just ask, where did this start? The thing you're, maybe it's pornography or, or masturbation. Where did that start? What were the circumstances? When did this addiction begin? When did that relationship start? When did it go off the rails? And if you can start asking the Lord to not only reveal where it started, but some of the reasons, some of the reasons, that, the coping that you developed around it. But then the third piece is to receive, and really this is the replacement piece. But the reason I didn't put replace is because that's not, that's not what Paul says when he finds somebody tangled up in something. He doesn't say, you're doing it wrong, you've got to do it different. He says, remember the gospel. Receive grace. And in receiving the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you come to realize that you are actually accepted in your, while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God made us alive. While we were enemies, Christ died. While we are tangled up, the seed of the gospel gets dropped in. You don't have to clear it up for him to come and bring the rescue. That's not how the good shepherd works. The good shepherd leaves the 99 in the desert and he goes and he finds the one who can't find his way home. To receive the grace of the Lord is the key. In other words, it's to encounter the Lord. Jen says this, when we stumble into emotional affairs, physical affairs, Agreements with darkness or cultish practices, vows or hurtful self-curses, addictions, controlling codependent relationships that step out of God's best. His heart in all these situations is to rescue us. And when we open doors that lead to unwanted consequences or when we live in generational patterns that feel normal to us but slowly creep up and devour holiness in our lives like vines, Jesus is the shepherd searching and looking to entangle us from what has snared us. This is really the goal of what we call freedom prayers, this ministry that we're starting here. What would it look like to encounter the Lord and three times if necessary, let him speak to you about the places that you've entangled up and the reasons why and how he can actually help you break agreement and receive his empowering presence. For those who have been in Freedom Prayer, you're like, that's exactly what happens. <laughs> and I just can't wait for more of you to experience it. But th- like that, that is what happens in a prayer time. Let me, let me wrap up with this. Uh, this has been in my heart a lot last week. Um, what would it look like to encounter the Lord? Now, some of you may be afraid to encounter the Lord because of what you're tangled up in. But I, what I've said is that the Good Shepherd knows he, he lays his life down for the sheep. The good shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. He finds the wandering. He, and then, you know what he does with that sheep? It says that he picks up the sheep and he puts it around his neck. Did you know that the picture of the good shepherd in the Gospel of Luke is that he's actually going to carry the burden with you, of you, for you? Of course, that picture then takes more shape whenever we see him carrying a literal cross where he dies for my sin and for our sin and the sin of the world, and he brings it up to Calvary. In, in Colossians, it's one of those passages where, where Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive. But then he says, here's how to break it. You recognize 
that you have been forgiven by his cross and that the sins that are held against you are nailed to his cross and they're, they're disqualified, they're broken down. This is the Jesus, this is the Lord that reigns in heaven today. This is the one that wants a relationship with you, who died for you, to encounter this Lord. But Hebrews 5, this comes right on the heels of Hebrews 4 where it says that he's tempted in all points as we are, yet he's without sin. And this qualifies him to be this merciful high priest so that we can approach his, his throne and find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. But then chapter 5, it seems like a totally new topic, but it's not. It's the same high priest. And it says that high priest, he's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and those who wander. In obvious, those who are led astray. He, he doesn't deal harshly with them. That's me. That's how I deal with people who are ignorant and who wander. That is not the Lord Jesus. And if you have experienced a father or a mother, if you have experienced a church who is anything unlike this, that is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is that he can deal gently with wanderers. He, he's able. That's the word. He is able to deal gently. He is so gentle. He's so good. He wants to find a sheep, to pick it up, to put it on his shoulders. Why? Because he himself is subject to weakness. He understands the desires, how easily people get off track. And in story after story, we find that Jesus has the desire and the authority to set prisoners and captives free. If you're entangled in something, Jesus wants to break you out. I think only Jesus can break you out. To receive in grace this gift, to renounce the lies that we are wrapped up in, and then to find a community of love to support. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Would you stand? I want to bless you with a prayer, and we'll finish our time. And so if you could just go grab your kids. You can hang out and, and meet some folks too. Oh Lord God, sink this message into our hearts. Lord, would you illuminate sin and tangled messes? Lord, I'm picturing this kind of web of vines that it just feels like life in a shadow underneath them. Lord, would you break through by your light and shine something so that there can be hope for somebody today? Hope of light, hope of healing, hope of freedom. Set us free, O oh Lord, for your glory and for your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.